0: Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. Bringing us up to the season of Advent, that is the Christmas season, man, who can believe that Christmas is like... Right here, right. It is like yes, Nia. Okay, anybody? Christmas decorations so far? Anybody? Okay, we have officially started decking the halls on Cedar Street. So uh, exciting, exciting times for uh, exciting times for our our family. Lots of children into uh, into Christmas decorations. So um, it was funny yesterday. We uh, we got the ornaments out. We don't have our tree up yet because we always go cut it down like close to uh, close to Thanksgiving. And so, um, but we had the boxes out because there were a few things in there that we needed to also get out. And so Judah has our little boy, Judah, uh, he's three. He has a little tree that goes in his bedroom. It's not like really little, like it sits on top of a nightstand or something. It's like, you know, I mean, it's like this, right. And, um, so you can hang ornaments on it. So he was taking all the ornaments out and like going and putting them on his tree. So he's got his tree decorated. We are following suit here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but we 're in the Book of Habakkuk as we work our way up to the season of Advent in the series uh, that we have uh, entitled "Walking by Faith in the Face of Suffering Habakkuk is this uh, is this short uh, minor prophet uh, at the tail end of the Old Testament, uh, and in it we see uh, really a, a back and forth dialogue, really interesting back and forth dialogue between the Lord and his prophet Habakkuk. This morning, um, as we uh, kind of turn towards part two of chapter two, we see a song from the Lord. We see a song from the Lord, followed by a song that will see from Habakkuk next week. So we finish out this series with two songs. Uh, so how will the first inform the second? That's a great consideration for us to uh, to be thinking about as we work through this morning's passage. Uh, does the Bible really have any answers for real life? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? Does the Bible really have any real answers for life. This is the question presented by Jerry Bridges on page 14 of his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And it is without a doubt a thought that each of us have wrestled with at one time or another. Now perhaps we didn't, we didn't say it exactly that way. Maybe it sounded a little bit different, but that is the substance. right? it's husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, friends, students. Disciple makers, the question we often ask ourselves is this. How does God's word shape my actions? How does God's word shape my actions? How does it shape my behavior, my feelings, my aspirations, and my response to various Circumstances. We are of the conviction that the Word of God informs the way that we respond in each one of these areas. In fact, I would make the argument that God loves and desires that these types of considerations would occupy space in our thought, that we would be thinking about them, that we would be meditating. On them, I say this because we have books like Habakkuk that reinforce this point. It's not just something that I'm making up, that God desires that we would wrestle with these types of questions and considerations. But, but Habakkuk helps us to understand what this looks like. And so let me review for just a moment. Okay, Habakkuk is in this, in this position of feeling very overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the ungodliness that grips the people of Judah, that is God's people. In response, he asks a series of very bold questions to God. Questions like, do you see? Do you save? And how will you respond to the rebellion of your people? To which God responds, I am in process of judging the sin of my people through this most unorthodox of ways. That being the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a wicked and hasty nation. The rebellion of his people is discouraging. In addition, Habakkuk has zero framework. For God punishing the sin of his people in the manner in which he has chosen to do so here. In chapter 2, the Lord graciously responds to his prophet's second round of questions. And he does so by assuring him of the future judgment of the wicked Babylonians. In verses 2 and 3 of Habakkuk chapter 2, the Lord instructs Habakkuk to write the vision. To, to make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Okay, just, just chill for a minute. Okay, because it will surely come. In fact, it most certainly will not delay. God would go on to contrast the walk of faith resulting in life, be not confused, and the walk of the world that results in death. One characterized by pride and dishonesty, that being the walk of the world. And the other righteousness and belief in the Lord and his word, that being the walk of righteousness, the walk of faith. There's an exhortation, okay, there's there's an exhortation for the modern reader towards a walk of faith in light of the righteousness that we receive through Jesus. In this final section of chapter 2, a continuation of part 1 from last week, we find recorded a song, five stanzas long. Intended to taunt and expose the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, because of their wickedness while unpacking the details of their certain downfall. Big idea, part two, Habakkuk chapter two. The Lord rightfully judges the sin of the wicked while reinforcing hope for the righteous as he fills the world with a knowledge of his glory. This would be incredibly helpful to make note of. This will guide our time as we work through part two of Habakkuk 2. The Lord rightfully judges the sin of the wicked. Why? He is a holy God, right? And he has every right to judge and to act as he so chooses. The Lord rightfully judges the sin of the wicked while reinforcing Hope for the righteous, those who are made righteous through faith in his work, in his son, as he fills the world with the knowledge of his glory. My goal this morning is to convince you of three points. Number one, the Lord's indictment against the Babylonians connects in essence with every human heart. Okay, I want to convince you of this, that the Lord's indictment against the Babylonians connects in essence with every human heart. Consequently, there is a warning to you and I. This is an incredibly practical passage for us this morning. Okay, this is an incredibly applicable second part of Habakkuk chapter 2 for you and I this morning because the essence of the message of the Lord connects with each and every one of us. That's number one, I want to convince you of that. Number two, there is coming a day, as is promised to Habakkuk, that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. We have something to look forward to. The glory of the Lord filling the earth. Man, with the assurance of suffering and the Lord's call for patience and rescue, this point provides us with hope. Hope that we are in desperate need of. Point three. Trying to convince you guys of, of this, right? That, that these truths, these two truths ought to serve to drive us to Christ while forming hearts of confidence in what we know and worship. These truths ought to drive us to Christ while forming hearts of confidence in what we know And worship. Let's look at point one. Here we go. Everybody ready? Everybody feeling good? Here we go. Bible's open. Habakkuk 2.1. The Lord's indictment against the Babylonians connects in essence with every human heart. Consequently, there is a warning that you and I ought to be eager to heed. In verses 6 through 20, the Lord makes his case for the future judgment of Babylon through a series of woes, very similar to, to funeral language that presents the reason for punishment as well as the final result. Part one is all about the judgment of the Lord towards The Babylonians, not only is he judging the wickedness and the sin of his people by way of the hands of the Babylonians. He's employing this nation to judge the sin of his people. But he wants to assure Habakkuk and he wants to assure us that no wickedness goes unjudged. That he will indeed judge the sin and the wickedness, the rebellion of the Babylonians. The song helps us to understand what that looks like, what Habakkuk ought to expect, and the reason behind the Lord's action against this wicked nation. Not only that, not only we find the song from the Lord, but we find the Lord calling those whom the Babylonians have destroyed to rise up and join in taunting them. We see here in part two of Habakkuk 2, the victimized. Right, the, the victimized rising up and offering their voices along with the Lord. The Lord calls them to do this. The victimizer himself will become the victim. That is what we see as we consider the, the work of the Lord against the Babylonians. Look with me at verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? That is all of these, all of these peoples, all of these nations who have felt and experienced the wickedness of Babylon. Shall they not take up their taunt against him with scoffing and ridicule for him saying, reason, purpose behind the judgment of the Lord? Here's the five stanzas. Woe to the greedy. To those who rely on the treasures of this world for protection, man, woe. Woe to the violent, woe to the manipulative, and woe to the idolatrous. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to take just a few minutes and I want us to consider the words of our great God here. I want us to consider what these look like. I want us to, to talk for a moment about their presence in the practice of the Babylonians, and then I want you and I, I want us to respond appropriately, recognizing residual in our own hearts, repenting of sin, and looking to Jesus. So let's begin with this woe to the greedy in verses 6 through 8. Woe to the greedy. This is stanza 1. Woe to him, the Lord says, who heaps up what is not his own. And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, the Lord says. Verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. This is the warning from the Lord. Greed and conquest have only served to what? Well, to condemn the Babylonians. They don't know the Lord and they don't trust the Lord. And as a result, they pursued tirelessly after lands and possessions and people believing that in them they will find satisfaction of heart that you and I know is to be found only in the God who saves. These words are directed towards Babylon. Okay, these words are directed towards Babylon and towards their king. At the same time, we are a people. All familiar with this same snare and would do well to take note of this prophecy ultimate satisfaction in anyone or anything that is not the Lord. The Babylonians have taken up permanent residence right there. And if we are not careful, we run the very real risk of following in their footsteps. In a 2005 article titled, The Faces of Greed, J. Wood Explores Greed. Because we're talking about greed and we're talking about this woe from the Lord directed towards the greedy Babylonians. We're recognizing greed, right? Perhaps maybe even now wrestling with the presence of of residual sin, greed in our own lives. It would be helpful to consider what it is, what it says, and why it is so dangerous. What does Jay Wood have to say? He writes the following. He says, greed is an inappropriate attitude toward things of value. So there's no denying the value. There is just this recognition of an inappropriate attitude directed towards these things of value built on the mistaken judgment that my well-being is tied to the sum of my possessions. Greed is he writes, is more than mistaken belief. It is certainly mistaken belief, but it is more than that. It also involves emotions, perhaps longing, unfulfillment or fear, and attitudes, the sense of entitlement or rivalry. And then listen to what he says here. So powerful, so helpful. Greed, Wood writes, alienates us from God. Greed alienates us from our neighbor and greed alienates us from our true selves. All that the Lord intends to accomplish. All that the Lord intends for the capstone of his creation, humans to enjoy God, one another. His world and inward peace is made increasingly more distant through greed. No wonder the Lord has such strong woe directed on this specific topic. Let's go one step further. Christine Hoover, in a contribution to the Gospel Coalition in 2015, records the following. As she thinks more deeply about her use of technology and all the pain she feels that it causes her. Now, here's what we're doing. We're seeking to understand what greed is, right? We're understanding the essence of greed. We're understanding the danger of greed in order that we might heed the warning being offered by the Lord here. What does Christine write? She writes this. She says, what you are doing doing, she's having this inward conversation with herself. It's like, self, here's what you're doing. This is what it looks like, okay? Self, here is the problem. Here is what you are doing. You are being greedy. She's recording her thoughts. She's diagnosing this in her own life in light of what the scriptures have to say about who we are and how we live and where our affections ought to be directed. She's diagnosing it in her own life, and she's saying, here's the problem. You're being greedy, Christine. Technology and social media is birthing a, and this is interesting, a new greed, and you have fallen into its snare. And so she's elaborating upon the, the, the advancement of, the transformation of, and new opportunity for greed given the technological age that we live in. Okay, She's saying greed in many ways looks different today than it has in the past. There are new opportunities for greed. Right, the, the root is the same, but the fruit is beginning to look a little bit different. Right? The way that it manifests itself in our, in our lives, she continues on. She says, your desire for accolades, invitations, relationships with those that I, God, haven't given to you, followers, and whatever contentment you think you'll gain is actually covetousness. And greed, and all you're accomplishing is piercing yourself through with many sorrows. Your greediness, Christine realizes, means you are trusting in uncertain riches and not in me. That is the Lord. Right? You're, you're welcoming and you're fostering stress through greed. Stress that gives the illusion that you don't have time to give to others. That you're busy in ways that you are not. That you don't have enough when you have all that you need. None of these things ultimately, may, ultimately matter. They amount to not. And in the case of the Babylonians will lead to their destruction. That is what the Lord is saying here. Your greed will lead to your downfall. It will lead to your destruction. What God is desiring for those reading the words of this prophecy is that we would wrestle that we would that we would wrestle with this idea and that we would grasp this idea that if we are not careful, greed could lead to our destruction as well. The encouragement then would be to refocus. Christine continues, this is what matters, she says. This is true gain. It's not an uptick in Twitter followers or an important email coming through or seeing how you stack up against others. All of what's important With regard to contentment happens in the present. Therefore, pursue godliness and pursue contentment in who? In Christ. This is great gain. The contentment that we find and that we realize in Christ, that is great gain. Gain. we are after so many things. I'm reading Christine writing this, and I'm like, yes, like, I could have written the same thing, and so could you have, <laughs> right? Like We can identify with her words here. We are after so many things, and it's playing out on our phones and iPads and computers as much as it ever has in our material possessions and our bank accounts. It's at this point that we recognize the transformation of greed. We understand new greed. Historically, greed may have been identified or identifiable by my by my coveting what Rebecca possesses in her bank account. That that is the fruit of greed in my life. But doesn't it look a little bit different as we consider the technological landscape in which we live? Isn't there opportunity to engage in 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 greed and to practice greedy behavior and lean forward in greedy action? that exists now, that hasn't existed by way of our practice in the past? Why are we, why am I checking my phone so often, scrolling through Facebook or Instagram? What are we looking for? What, why are we leaving the present that God has given us so richly to enjoy, to go somewhere else in our mind, a place that is often called comparison, or discontent god has given me the present to richly enjoy therefore we embrace this recognition i have enough and with god's help will not be enslaved by the subtlety of new greed the message of the lord is this right you you look to things and their and their acquisition To recognition and the celebration of the fruit of your strength. Which we remember back in Habakkuk chapter 1 is identified as the God of the Babylonians. Their God is their strength. You're looking to these things for fulfillment and joy. Only to one day realize that all of this will fade. Babylon, you may not realize this now. Right? But the Lord exercises his sovereign and providential control and he knows that it is but ruin. As they acquired it, as they raked it in, the Lord is saying, oh, but it will all ultimately fall. It will all ultimately fade. Babylon, you will be overthrown and your possessions get this, will be plundered. As you yourselves are not strong enough to retain them. This is the woe to the Chaldeans and the warning to readers, to you and I, this, This warning, do not be taken captive by the temporal things of this world, by feelings or possessions, understanding that they are perishable. They will not satisfy and they will not last. The grass withers and the flower fades, but it is Christ and the living word of God that will stand forever. This Christ... Jesus, who lays aside his riches to take the form of a servant, embracing material lack and poverty so that we might understand through fellowship with God that we take possession of that which is most valuable. And that is, here it is, him. Through the power of the Spirit, we long for and cling to the Lord. We seek the well-being of our neighbors and we take hold of the peace that the gospel provides that suppresses fear and anxiety. At the cross, Christ covers our guilt and our shame. Amen? With His precious and healing blood. He continues... Woe to the one who realizes or relies on worldly treasure for protection. Look with me at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Babylon itself... The nation, the community, the city, the people are protected by a series of massive gates and walls. Gates and walls constructed, built with materials from those cities that they had marched through. Or by purchasing, by way of selling their stolen goods. Man, just to be clear, says the Lord, you have brought shame upon your house as even the stones placed atop one another for your safety cry out against you. You place them there to protect you, and yet they cry out against you. They offer up evidence of your wickedness. Rest assured, the Lord says, there will be no escape. There will be no escape. Rest assured that those whose scheming results in ruin for others will be held responsible. Right, That there is no rescue from an all-powerful God. There is only rescue in an all-powerful God. Number three, woe to the violent and the unjust. We're going to begin moving more quickly through these at this point. Verse 12, him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on inequity, behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. Clearly, clearly war and captive labor served in the construction of the beautiful buildings that line the streets of Babylon. These are not the acts of a people who know, love, and fear the Lord. The wicked build their kingdom upon the backs of slaves with materials and funds they have taken from others, all with the intention of keeping other people out. I want us to contrast this with the kingdom of our king, God, Jesus, for just a moment, who builds his kingdom upon the sacrifice of the perfect son. Who takes our sin and the father's judgment on himself so that we could come in. He is building a kingdom and he's filling it with a people who will worship and glorify him. There's no need to prevent anyone from entering in, for only those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus will be allowed entrance to the party. A kingdom, a kingdom with a river that flows from a temple into the streets, watering the tree of life whose leaves make available healing for the nations. Man, the kingdom of of Babylon reflects the drive and value of a separated world. Whereas the kingdom of Christ reflects the heart of the Father built upon the work of the Son. And now, whereas the Babylonians are totally wrapped up in the construction of their own community. men the people of God, so transformed by the power of the gospel, walking by faith, are called to focus on the Lord's word to construct communities that reflect his kingdom. And the rule of the better king, Jesus. Kingdom of truth. Right? A kingdom that is characterized by, by kindness and, and generosity. And self-sacrifice in service to our God and those created in his image. Consider the contrast. The ways of the world. The ways of the wicked. And this, this better king who is constructing a better kingdom, filling it with people, who he makes alive through his sacrifice in our place. Number four, woe to the manipulative and dishonoring those who dishonor those around him and those who are more interested in personal gain. If that comes at the cost of manipulation and shame of others, God has zero room for this as these are the actions That clearly reflect a heart that is far from the Lord. The Lord says in verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. And then finally, woe to the idolaters. Look with me at verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. How silly, how silly can this thing teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breadth in it at all. God is making a clear connection here to to an idolatrous practice. In which an individual or a community gather wood or stones and and carve them into images, believing then that spirits would occupy their person. They overlay them with gold and and valuable things. They set them up and offer to them. Only they're dead. (laughs) There's no breath in them. There's no life in them. They're unable to teach you of anything except for the despair that is brought about as they refuse given their inability. To speak back. The Lord makes it plain. The great powers of this world. Will in the end amount to nothing before him. Every great power in this world. Will at the end amount to nothing before him. Their vain attempts to establish their own glory will fail. Why point two? We're motoring through these last two. So hang with me. Point two, there is coming a day, as is promised Habakkuk, that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. With the assurance of suffering and the Lord's call for patience, rescue, and vindication, this fuels a hope for Habakkuk. This fuels hope for you and I living, sojourners, in a world that is not our home. Knowing, knowing all well that we will experience difficulty and trial And suffering, we consider the woes as a unit. We just read them through in one piece. And yet, what we find as we look to the text is that there is a break that serves to reorient Habakkuk's attention on the greatness of our God. Look with me at verse 14. What does the Lord say in the middle of, in the midst of these woes? He says this, I am filling the earth with a knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. Here, Habakkuk quotes and expands upon the vision of the prophet Isaiah, the glory of God in the desert with his people through the Exodus and later in the temple that dwells across the whole earth, the knowledge of this glory, God says, will one day get this be universal. And knowledge of this glory will one day be universal. It's not the glory of man. It's not the knowledge of the glory of man that will fill the earth. Did everybody catch that? It's not your glory. It's not a knowledge of your glory that will fill this earth. Pride will ultimately result in destruction. The woes make that incredibly clear for us. Babylon would experience this fall as will all of the Babylons of this world. Nations and systems that set their sights on bloodshed for the purpose of personal gain. God's interest is a knowledge of his glory. And the institution of his kingdom. Through the work and power of a resurrected Jesus... If there's any question as to who is in charge, as to who is ruling, we find that settled in verse 20. As this chapter closes with these awesome words. But the Lord is in his holy temple. And out of reverence, let all the earth keep silent before him. The Lord has shown incredible kindness and incredible compassion. By way of his willingness to engage with Habakkuk through this these two chapters up until this point. But let's be clear, the Lord says. Right, I am I am I am occupying space and, and, and time and position on high. I am ruling and acting as I so please. And therefore, while we have engaged in like this incredibly profitable dialogue, let's be most clear. Given my occupation, and let, let all the earth out of reverence, out of reverence, stand silent before me. Let all the nations be still and know that I am am God. Point three. These truths serve to drive us to Christ. These truths of of the woe, right, of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord upon sin, wickedness, and rebellion. This realization that, that the Lord is working as He pleases to fill the earth with the knowledge of His glory and that we ought to in reverence Stand silent before him, confident that he is working as he so pleases. These truths serve to drive us to Christ while forming hearts of confidence in what we know and worship. This first song that's recorded here in Habakkuk will lead to a second song. Next week, we're going to close out with Habakkuk's song in response to the song of the Lord. The call here is to take consideration of the woes issued to the Babylonians as the gospel exposes the same residue of sin in each one of us. The call is to trust the Lord. Or the call is to, is to trust God, to trust his promise, to judge sin as he systematically brings ruin the dead gods of this world. Greed. Violence, idolatry, self-seeking wickedness, manipulation, and dishonor of others. Man, the gospel exposes our pride. And the root, hear me here, this is very important. And the root of these sins in us as they stand in such stark contrast to the character of Christ. Pride. Jesus, the perfect son who takes on our judgment, who dies in our place, who defeats sin and hell before taking up his life, calling his people, commissioning them for a greater work, all before sending his spirit to convict, to restore, transform, and strengthen. Through the spirit, we kill this way. We set our sights on a better, laboring, speaking, working towards restoration as advocates and participants in the mission of God. To what? To fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. To any who would protest, who would object and let him stand silent before our God. What does it look like for you as we consider the, the sins stirred up by the Lord by way of these woes? As we consider their practice in our own life, what does it look like to, to acknowledge them and to, and to look to Christ – to, to go to Christ and to and to petition him to, to cleanse us and to create within us a spirit and a desire that looks more like um, the Lord's spirit and, and acts in greater accord with his desire. I think that's a question that we each have to do some wrestling with. As we close, here's what I want us to do. I want to invite you to stand with me. Stand with me, and uh, in just a moment, we're going, to, we're going to come to the table. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper. It's something that we do as a, as a body of God's people each week. We come to the table, and we remember his sacrifice. We remember the sacrifice of our king. We remember our citizenship in a new kingdom. We enjoy uh, renewed fellowship with God and with one another. We come as a, a people Filled with gratitude and joy, adopted sons and daughters. We celebrate what Christ has done. But as we, as we do so, one thing that I want us to consider this week is what it looks like to turn away from certain heart postures and to embrace another. To desire the Spirit's work of fostering these within us to an increasingly greater degree. Right, one degree of holiness to next the next, that we would look more and more like Jesus in every aspect and element of our walk, that as you are standing where you are standing, preparing to approach the table, that you would begin to look more like Christ as we practice. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to, I want us to just hold out our hands. I want us to hold out our hands. I want us to hold up our arms. And I want us to embrace this following reality for our lives. That we would just petition God. That we would petition the Spirit to work. That we would request of Him. That we would make ourselves open and available. That we would desire this type of transformation in our lives. That we would desire a life that reflects more of what the Lord would have For us, as opposed to what the Lord so oftentimes offers. And so so pray with me. Father, we, we ask as we consider the woes to the Babylonians, as we recognize the the residual effects of sin in our own lives and our proneness to engage in similar practice, we ask that you would create within us by way of your spirit hearts of generosity as opposed to greed, hearts that mirror your heart, heart hearts that bring glory to you, hearts that assist in your working to accomplish your mission of filling the earth with the knowledge of your glory as we look more and more like you. We pray that you would give us reliance on you and not the things of this world for joy, not the things of this world for satisfaction, not the things of this world for security, but Christ. We pray that you would give us hearts that desire peace, peace with one another as opposed to war and discontentment. Father, we pray you would give us hearts of of honor, desiring to, to, to see and extend honor, not manipulation. And finally, a a deep, deep love and appreciation for you as we cast away the idols of our hearts, as you have cast away our sin in Christ. Help us to consider these truths and this commitment as we come to the table as your people. As we prepare to offer our voices in song, may we sing to a great God who we acknowledge rescues us. the Son takes on Himself our penalty so that we might sing towards a Father that we know and can be confident that loves us. Thank you for Christ. Make us look more like Him. And it's in His strong name we pray. Amen. Amen.